Have you ever heard the expression, there's no there there? Well, let's ask the question, is there there there? That's our podcast from the full-service digital storytelling agency, Graphic Machine. I'm Matt Staub. I'm a partner here at Graphic Machine. Here with the other two partners of Graphic Machine, Brian Jones and Patience Jones. Hello. And the dogs, they're not on microphones. (laughs) This week, episode 68, the debate edition. It's political debate season. What else can we learn from this? There are often debates in the business world between companies, between different solutions. When should companies indulge these debates? Are they good for business or bad? Do they reflect what the consumers are saying about different products? Does a company come off as defensive when it takes a debate position? And when it grows its share, it starts to win a debate. How does it exit the debate gracefully and become a front runner? It's all a big metaphor really for the political debates and products. So first of all, let's talk about some of the famous debates in the modern economy. The first one that comes to mind, I think, is Apple versus whatever the other thing is, whether it be Mac versus PC or Android versus iPhone. Do you guys think that the companies are indulging in that debate and really kind of taking a position? Because there's definitely the fanboys that are stoking the debate. I think at different points, all the companies that you mentioned there, and I think Microsoft also falls into that category as well, have participated and they've made light of or taken advantage of the existence of that debate. I think after a while it grows thin because it just feels like it's not really talking about what the products can do. It's more like what the other ones aren't doing. The same holds true in political conversations that it's usually not a conversation about what the thing that you might be supporting can do for you. It's more like what the other person isn't doing. So do you think it just preaches the choir in that case? You're empowering your acolytes. For instance, I think about Android pokes a little bit of fun with iPhone, I think, with together, not the same, which is their latest tagline, which basically says, you know, we're all in this together as Android users, but we're not all the same as opposed to iPhone. iPhone doesn't really acknowledge the existence of anything else. I guess that's the benefit of having strong brand positioning. Once you enter that debate, you have to allocate a certain amount of your resources to maintaining that debate, because I don't think truly there's ever really a graceful exit, because as long as the other product exists, there's always going to be people that are carrying that on and carrying that torch. If all of your marketing and your value is premised on, well, we're not company B, at some point, there's probably going to be a company C that comes along and a company D. There really isn't a way for a consumer to evaluate you relative to those other newcomers if all they know is, well... We're not A. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's like the Windows phone or the John Kasich of the uh, mm-hmm. debate, right? It enters where there's two very strong contenders or a few very strong contenders, and it's a reasonably strong entry, but is it too little too late? Then how does that little player enter? Do they pick the fight? It's sort of in the conundrum. There's two new products that are sort of in that space right now. You mentioned Windows phone. It's a great product. It really is. It's not one that I own, but it's one that I looked at and thought, wow, they did a really good job on it. The trick of it is, and this is what Wired mentioned years ago, because these are maturing markets, your product doesn't have to just be better. It has to be like 10 times or 100 times better in order to compel people Mm -hmm. to move off of their platform, whatever it might Mm -hmm. be, onto the new platform. And you look at the new thing, Apple Music versus Spotify, and how that's a debate that's yet to be had, but I think that's sort of where the next one, because Apple's definitely drawn a line in the sand that they want all those subscribers. Just like with political candidates, if you have a candidate, and in this case, if you have a company whose big party line is, we're not that guy, we're not that guy, and there's a big swell of support for that company, those people are probably not going to be the most loyal customers because what they're swayed by is we're not that company. So the next time somebody else comes in and says, we're not that company and there's a huge groundswell, you're going to lose those people. But 
just like with politics, when you have people who are really looking for somebody that takes a particular position on a particular issue, and you make the argument for yourself based on that, then you have a loyal supporter, you have a loyal customer, and they'll be loyal as long as you keep doing that thing. It was kind of like Mitt Romney ran as the not Barack Obama, and Mm -hmm. nobody bought in terms of him motivating people to turn out nobody was buying. So that's a great metaphor because it extends into politics. If you are that C player, it's A versus B, and you're the C player, you're the Windows phone. If you're the disruptor and you're trying to gain share, you have to out-crazy everyone, kind of, which is what we're Mm -hmm. seeing right now in politics. Is that a challenge for that disruptor industry? And then if you're being all crazy trying to just disrupt A versus B's fight, then if you do gain a foothold in the market, how do you transition away from that? To that, I would say, how's that going for T-Mobile so far? (laughs) It's too soon. (laughs) Well, I mean, they are now the number three. They've hopped sprint, I think. Well, they keep changing spaces yeah, because they are the crazy brother in the family, as it were. And it hasn't leapfrogged them into a more powerful position. It's more just created a heightened awareness of their existence. Plus, if you come in as the crazy person and your sole argument is vote for me or buy my thing because I'm not getting involved with that thing over there. Well, now you're doing the same thing that A and B are doing. You're just doing it on a different level. Instead of being, I'm not candidate B, it's, I don't get involved with that level of discourse, the normative discourse. So it doesn't really matter what I'm saying. I'm on the fringe, so I'm the right person. Is there necessarily an air of desperation in it? Because you don't see AT&T and Verizon indulging in this comparative. You don't now, but years ago, yeah, you did. And you did see Apple do this really welcoming comparison with the Mac versus PC thing. Was it just because it was so charming or self-effacing that it didn't seem desperate? Why did that work? I think it was because they were so clearly the underdog in that market. Install base was like 92% Windows versus oh, wow. 8% split among everything else. They raised their market share by, I think, 4 to 5%. So it was an incredibly successful program for them. But they were never at risk at looking like not the underdog. Yeah, the big bully in the yeah. room. I can't think of any examples of where the incumbent strong position picked a fight. It just seems like it's never a good strategy. I would Mm. agree. Can you? I agree that it's not. I'm trying to remember. So Coke, Pepsi, Mm -hmm. how far behind was Pepsi when they did the whole Pepsi challenge thing? They were behind. The testing methodology for that was what was so interesting. Coke was predominant. That was the interesting thing about the Coke and Pepsi taste trials or the taste test was that it all boiled down to portion size. People were preferring Pepsi because the portion size was smaller and people liked the sweeter taste of Pepsi at that moment. But when you have a larger can of that, people actually don't prefer it and they prefer Coke over the longer haul in terms of being a more refreshing drink. And I think, yeah, they were trying to uncouple their other brand associations and just get to taste. They were basically trying to program how consumers thought about the product. it It was such an aggressive thing and it was the first thing that I remember in my formative years thinking oh, they are really explicitly calling this other company out. There may have been other brands that did that, but as a kid, that is the first one that I remember. So that's why I was wondering, was Coke that much farther ahead for Pepsi to throw down that big gauntlet? It was. I think it was like 75% market share sort of thing. Yeah, it was significant. So when you think about these issues where there are product or company partisans, And when the company is not necessarily participating, for instance, Ford versus Chevy, or even when the companies aren't themselves comparing, the iPhone versus Android debate just rages on the the internet between all the nerds. And there's a variety of these comparisons. 
what should a company do, if anything, to think about either nurturing that quietly or monitoring it for reputation implications? Or what does that even mean to a company? Does it mean they've lost control of their narrative when there's just an army of advocates having this debate kind of outside of themselves? And is it good for them to stay away from it? I mean, I think you always run the risk of whenever you have passionate fans, they may latch on to an aspect of your promotional items that may not be the key or cornerstone component that you want them to latch on to. And that's just the nature of marketing. When you are fanning the flames of that, I think you really run the risk of it becoming a sort of forest fire, as it were, and you may not like the result and you may not like the cleanup afterwards. It's kind of the Miley Cyrus problem, right? Miley <laughs> that Cyrus. That could mean had, so many things. Yeah. <laughs> she had this huge, rabid following when she was Hannah Montana. She didn't go out and ask for it, but Disney did and her parents did and, you know, everybody did and kind of cultivated this cult of personality, which also happens with brands, and then decided that she wasn't going to do that anymore and people lost their minds. Now she has a different fan base and some of those fans have gone with her, but the people that are her fans now, like who she is now, they have no use for Hannah Montana. So I think that is the conundrum that brands find themselves in. If you're really good at what you do, you're going to have a bunch of crazy preteens with your company logo on their trapper keepers and they're going to be waiting for you. And anything you do that they don't agree with, you're going to hear about it. The flip side of that is if nobody's talking about you, if nobody's waiting in the food court for you to come out and take the stage, is that better? Probably not. Yeah. Android again comes up as an example because I don't think ever did they market the fact that they're an open source platform as a virtue in their consumer marketing. But this has been a rallying cry of the advocates on the internet. And so if they ever decided, well, we actually think for quality control issues, we're going to close down the ecosystem. They could never do that now. And it's not something they took the position of. It's just something they built a movement around. You're right. In the sense that we often typecast things as consumers, we get used to certain things being a certain bucket. And when they move outside of that bucket, it can take a while, if ever, to latch back onto them again. I think it happens more often in the entertainment industry. In products, it's easier to make that transition because we don't have that emotional sort of connection with it in the same way. Which gets us back to the political debates where we do have an emotional connection, mm -hmm. either to the candidate or the outcome or the argument. Although the debates are designed to give us all the information that we need to make a good, solid yeah. decision that we're comfortable with. Instead, it's like a dancing parade of disaster. Yeah. <laughs> How do you really feel? <laughs> So speed round, what companies or products are you marginally rational partisans on, if anything? Any of the traditional product debates that you come down on one side or the other with? I mean, I can start. I, I'm yeah. a dedicated Android user, though I'm not an iPhone hater. I don't feel the need to disparage other products because I feel like mine is better. But that's one that I've identified strongly with, which is interesting because I use all Mac otherwise. So it's not an Apple thing. Do you guys have anything uh, like that? Shoot. Ford versus Chevy, Coke versus Pepsi. We're all Coke people here, right? See, this is the thing. I feel like this is blasphemy. I don't really care. Mm. Whatever's available, I will drink it. And I know that that's not... Where is Pepsi? Where, it's defying America, but... Where are they headquartered? Coke has really made an Americana brand and is so strongly associated with Atlanta, and I don't know anything about Pepsi. That's a big reason they're differentiated. I mean, Pepsi has multiple major plants throughout the United States, so I don't know which one they consider their headquarters. Yeah, because it's bottled locally, right? Just Coke and Pepsi? Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, I don't know. We had Diet Pepsi growing up. That was what my mom always drank. We didn't have soda. It was always in the house, in the glass bottles. As I got older and into high school and drank soda... 
I didn't care. I guess as a person who responds pretty actively to marketing, I have been convinced of changes <laughs> over time. So like, you know, I used to be an avid PC user and switched to Mac a handful of years ago and really enjoyed that transition from one thing to the other. And that wasn't necessarily because I finally came down on I am a PC hater or a Mac lover. It was more like, oh, this makes sense. That's kind of my underlying thread of this is that even if you are participating in the debate, make sure that you are positioning the underlying thread of why somebody should even care about your product always as the subtext of things. Yeah, and as with any debate, be capable of arguing the other side, lest you sound like a fool that has no perspective. I think that's true for all debates, but particularly in this world where people tend to be echoing marketing and kind of following blindly. It's amazing how people will take a side in anything they possibly can. PJ, no strong feelings? <laughs> I, I, I really don't. I mean, I'm sure if I like sat for a couple hours and thought about it or like went through my day and every decision I thought, okay, what am I doing? But nothing really stands out. But I was thinking of that scene. I can't remember if it's in Arrested Development or if it's in Juno where Michael Sarah's character, somebody tells him there's two sides to every story. There's two perspectives. And he's like, yeah, except for the Holocaust. I don't really see the other <laughs> side of that argument. And so that's what I was thinking of when other sides. <laughs> well, on that note, let's move on to the next mm-hmm. segment of the show where there are two ways to look at an issue, whether it's an out there, which is something we thought was cool that we'll share with you, or there, there, which is something that didn't go great and we think could go better. Out there's and there, there's start this week with Mr. Brian Jones. So mine is a there, there to America, I guess. Um, (laughs) First of all, to start off, I say this is why we can't have nice things. Oh, boy. So the hitchhiking robot was called Hitchbot, which is a Canadian project. It had made it through Germany and the Netherlands and all the way across Canada and had begun its tour in the United States and started in Massachusetts only to be destroyed in Philadelphia. So I guess specifically, it's a they're there to Philadelphia. So <laughs> Who destroyed it? What do they do? Some rotten teens decided to vandalize it and basically dismember the robot and left it on the side of the road. Just for background, this was a sociological experiment, right? Where right. they built a robot, put it on the road, said it was hitchhiking. It had a little display on it. Mm-hmm. It was trying to get, what, just around the world or to a specific place? Around the world, yeah. So it made it all over the place, and then it got to Philly and got destroyed. Yep. Ah. People are the worst. Like, there's nothing worse than people. It just hurts my heart when I hear stuff like that. And this is also why I can't have robots, because I definitely... Robots feel for them. Robot sympathizer. I am. It's trying to kill you and you want to hug it. Yeah, kind of. I think the robot is sad. No, it wants to kill me. But here's the thing. Let's not lose sight of the fact that it traveled halfway around the world already and people charged it and gave it a tour around cities. There's Twitter feeds of its adventures and then some idiot kids, the ones that ultimately destroyed it. But it had a pretty good run, right? Like we should have both hope and no hope in humanity as a result of this, right? Yeah, I think that's pretty much right on. (laughs) And it's doing its job as a sort of sociological experiment. It shows where we are. Yeah. (laughs) It is an accurate reflection. So the youth are the problem. So grim. I would love to pick the robot up and give him a tour of Kansas City. Send the I robot mean, over. Yeah, I want to like recuperate it, get it back on its feet, tell it it's not its fault. I don't think it's crying. I think its battery well, has been we'll disconnected. We'll never know. Thanks, Philadelphia. We'll never know. It's always sunny in Philadelphia, PJ. Except when the robot's getting beaten up. Uh, Brian's showing us the don't smiling face. Don't show me the ro- pictures. It's so <laughs> heartbreaking. Oh, my God. It's a robot. I'm just going to leave a smiley face on my computer screen when I leave the office. Do it. Then I'll be worried that he's like here at night alone, lonely. Oh, my computer is so lonely at night. 
It sends yeah. me emails. Yes. <laughs> PJ. God, it's so sad. Can you bring the mood up a little bit, PJ? With I don't know, man. I'm, ugh. <laughs> so, surprisingly, mine is not more depressing than that. <laughs> mine is an out there. There's a new book out called Red Notice. It's written by a guy named Bill Browder, who is a finance guy. He was the CEO of a investment fund called Hermitage Capital. And back in the mid-90s, he saw the economic trends that were going on in Russia. Nobody was doing any trading in Russia. So he opened up this fund and all of these very, very wealthy, good investors invested in it. And Browder ran it really successfully and did nothing wrong. I'm not going to spoil the book, but suffice to say that Russia did not like that very much. And terrible things happened to Bill Browder and his company and his family and his friends. And he wrote this book. He was attempting to bring Russian fraudsters to justice. And what he found out was that the whole country was involved in this. So it's a riveting book. And it talks all about the different types of trades and how the thefts worked and all the politics involved. And it's called Red Notice because when Interpol issues a notice to pick you up anywhere in the world that's the notice a red notice so interpol doesn't just crack down on copying your vhs tapes no (laughs) it's good to know yes rest easy fascinating it's really good so were the crimes as they were described in the book ones that would make people on wall street seem quaint or is it equivalent do you think good question i think it would make wall street crimes seem quaint because it was so inextricably tied with the judicial system oh, wow. and so it's like a top down the thing. FSB, which used to be the KGB and Putin. Like, so, so in he, this case, it's not even counterculture. It's like yeah. it's just being part of a system. It's normal. Yeah. yeah. And this guy, he was born in America, but he became a British citizen. They did not like that anybody outside of Russia was making money and they didn't care that they were making money too because they were getting hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes from all of these investments and all of this economic activity that wouldn't have happened but for Bill Browder going there and setting up these funds but they didn't care he wasn't Russian and the investors weren't Russian so shut it down wow illegally all right yeah it's, it's really intense good. my out there is the 40th anniversary of the seminal Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail for which there will be a re-release and don't know yet stateside, but in the UK, it will actually be in theaters and the surviving Monty Python members will do a special introduction for it. Oh, wow. I can't think of anything in my childhood. I mean, I don't know that how strongly I identify with Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail now, but I probably uttered the words from that movie more than I've said any other thing, maybe besides things in church as a child. It's so influential in a way that I can't imagine anything in our modern and very fragmented culture and media would be so pervasive. I don't know if you guys were big fans of Monty Python as well and could quote all the movies. Maybe in Saturday Night Live would be something like this much influence, but I don't know what the next, if ever again, we will have something like that movie. I think it came around to roughly the right time, and it was also more of a global phenomenon than anything else really had been at that time from a comedic standpoint. It was just so absurdist. Yeah. And also so intelligent and smart and... Yeah, and dry. Yeah. In a way that American humor was kind of going the other direction. I don't remember watching it ever until I think I saw the movie when I was in law school, but I'm told that it was on all the time at my grandparents' house and playing in the background. So I like to think that somehow I, you know... It's it's, Yeah, it's deep in my subconscious. 
See, it's something that I love to this day to quote, but I find it very difficult to watch really? as an adult. Well, I think I watched it as a teenager the first time, and the first time I watched it, I think I fell asleep. I didn't get it. And then the next time, it just became a phenomenon. But it's still hilarious. I just, I don't know. Maybe I just didn't give it enough time. Maybe I'll give myself an assignment. My perspective on it was when I watched it, it was really long the first time. But now I see it and I think it actually kind of breezes right by, which I Mm -hmm. think is a testament to how your tastes change over time. The ending of it is my absolute (laughs) favorite. (laughs) Like it is just the most amazing ending. So yes. Uh, So listeners would love to hear your thoughts on Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail. Quite the influential movie. It's just a rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) You see, any visual scenes, I'll just start laughing to myself. It's great. (laughs) Uh, Well, while you're laughing to yourself about this episode, we'll give you a little extra time because it is over. That was episode 68, the debate edition. For all the stuff we referenced on the show, you can check out our show page, graphicmachine.com slash ITTT. You can send us an email with your thoughts, questions, or suggestions, ITTT at graphicmachine.com. Twitter, it's a thing. Stock's going down, but it's still a thing. And we're on it. At Graphic Machine is our agency. At their podcast is our show. And you can check out a Facebook thread for this show and all the other shows where we discuss all the things we talked about. Come join us on the thread. Those can be found at facebook.com slash graphicmachineinc. I think that's it for now. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.